You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. Welcome to the program. It's hour two on this Tuesday. Dan and the Dan, that's Dan Patrick Show. We'll talk to Sam Smith. He wrote the book, The Jordan Rules. I don't know what his relationship is like with Michael now. Probably a little frosty. But uh, we'll talk to Sam Smith, what he thinks of the documentary. And Larry Scott, the Pac-12 commissioner, will stop by as we look at alternative plans for college football. Spent a little time last hour, we talked about the NFL season could begin October 8th. And this goes back to what I said I was looking for when they were releasing the schedule. The commissioner specifically told ownership, no hypotheticals. They were going to deal with the NFL schedule starting on time. And from what I was told, they were looking at flipping the first four months, if they or first month of the season, the first four weeks. If they had to flip it, and those were at the back end of the schedule, and the Super Bowl would be moved back to late February. That's what I was told. Maybe even into early March. Peter King, NBC Sports. NFL reporters said the portable schedule would be moving the first four weeks of the season into January. As a result, the 2020 season would start Thursday, October 8th, with the Buccaneers set to face the Chicago Bears on Thursday night football. Once again, this is plan B. This is contingency plans. And this is what I was told going into the scheduling party. It's going to work either way. If it starts on time, all right. But if it's pushed back into late February, NFL's fine with that. Even more anticipation leading up to the NFL season. And then you get you own February as well. And maybe just a piece of March. NFL's going to be fine with that. But, you know, this is just a contingency plan. This is what is being discussed, was discussed prior to last week. Also, with the baseball season, I still keep hearing that 4th of July, that's sort of the target date if they're going to be able to pull this off. they got to come up with the rev share here. Is it a 50-50 split? you got to get sign-off starting at the White House to governors, mayors, you know, trying to get testing in play. I mean, there's a lot of hurdles. But this is why the commissioner, Rob Manfred, has been kind of quiet because they're hunkered down trying to figure all this out. There's no reason to come out now and say, because we've asked for the commissioner, and I think he's going to pick his spots when he's going to do this because you don't want to put a date out there where somebody says, well, wait a minute, you told us, or you start to expect it happening around 4th of July. This is what I was told, and the source that told me this told me this five weeks ago. Circle, 4th of July, that's the target date. Target date of getting games back, or are you going to have an all-star game? Could you have an all-star game to start the season and use that as sort of a gathering spot? Could you do that in Los Angeles? I was told that that's now off the table because we're not letting teams. We don't want them cross-country traveling. We don't want that to happen. That's why you're going to have, you know, the, your schedule is going to be locally based, geographically more beneficial to these teams that you can take a bus if you have to. So just some of the things that are going on. We also talked about the NFL MVP odds are out. And I would not take Patrick Mahomes and I would not take Lamar Jackson. And there's a couple of reasons. They're basically competing with themselves. Patrick Mahomes is competing with Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson with Lamar Jackson. Mahomes coming off a Super Bowl win, Lamar Jackson coming off the MVP. That's why if I was looking at this to try to make money, I would probably go Deshaun Watson, maybe Baker Mayfield. You know, Russell Wilson would probably be my choice for MVP. But I, I keep saying that every year. Eventually, people are going to get around to, gosh, you know what? Russell Wilson never won an MVP. 
Here's the problem with Russell Wilson. He throws 33 touchdowns and eight interceptions every year, it seems like. And they somehow get a couple more wins or one more win than you would expect. That's usually the feeling I get with Seattle. Yeah, McLevin. Yeah, but he's like 20th in the league in passing, though. They don't ever throw the ball except in the red zone. And he gets touchdowns. Uh, he put up good numbers. I, I know that they're a running team, which, which I still don't understand. If I have Russell Wilson, why do I want to be a running team? But that's Pete Carroll, and it seems like they're going to stay with that. The biggest play in the Seahawks history, they threw the ball for a running team. Yes, Pauline. Russell Wilson's stats are a little deceptive. He does not throw for a lot of yards, does not. It's usually around 4,000. And he doesn't make a lot of attempts. That said, he's one of the leaders in touchdown passes every year. His touchdown per attempt ratio is the highest in the league. Two years ago, he led the league in touchdowns with 34 touchdown passes. He only threw for 3,900 yards. So he scores. He throws touchdown passes, which is more important than yardage. McLovin? They had, I don't think a running back ran a, ball, a touchdown in that season for the Seahawks. They just they don't have a running game in the red zone. But but their offense is predicated on running. So why do you have but, an offense that you can't run it when you get into the red zone? Well, I don't know. why. Well, they've changed a little bit, but why would you give MVP? Like, I don't think they're a top half of the league offense. So you can't give MVP to, like, his efficiency is amazing, but I don't think they move the ball or score a lot. So it'd be a weird – that's why That's why he hasn't gotten the MVP. If I took him out of that offense, if I took him off Seattle's roster – how many wins do you think Seattle has? Oh, not many. Okay. No, he's amazing. But but he doesn't like Mahomes. It's like those guys are putting up the big numbers. That's where you get the problem. Although Russell's Wilson, Russell's numbers are going up, up, up. He's like Brady. He's he's getting more passing yards. You know, I'd love there. to see. I'd like to see Russell Wilson with uh, I don't know, Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. Let's see how he does. What do you think? Think he'd do okay, McClub? Yeah, it'd be, be amazing. Yeah. Uh, but you're giving me a system argument, which uh, is my job. No, I, <laughs> I'm just giving you the talent that Kansas City has. If you put him on Dallas, if I switch Dak Prescott and Russell Wilson, now you tell oh. me who's going to be better. You put, you put Russell Wilson on the Cowboys, you put Dak Prescott in Seattle. No, no question, Russell Wilson. Dak Prescott has got better odds on winning the MVP. That shocks me. And when you said that Dak is going to ask to get paid like Deshaun, I was shocked too. Well, Deshaun Watson is, they're looking at a five-year, $200 million deal. Isn't he way more valuable than Dak Prescott? I mean, just like on the surface? Yes, to Texas he is. Yeah, They need him to be great. Dallas hopes Dak is great. They need him to be good. Deshaun Watson has to be great. And especially now, because you got Hopkins is now in Arizona, but he's going to, once again, the Cowboys have prolonged this and it's cost them more. Dak Prescott hadn't played a game and he's, he keeps making money every single day because you're going to, if Deshaun Watson signs that $40 million a year deal, I don't know if he's going to do that before July 15th. What's Dak Prescott worth? Now, I don't think he's worth $40 million if I'm, if I'm judging that on Deshaun Watson's value and Dak Prescott. I mean, this is all Monopoly money to us, but not every quarterback deserves to get the next highest salary. That's what's so flawed by these billionaires that they go, hey, Jared Goff, next guy up. Yep, you get paid more than this guy. At some point, somebody has to go, yeah, this is kind of crazy. You know, Jared Goff's a good quarterback. He's not 
he should not be the highest paid quarterback in the league at any point in his career, given what has happened so far. Dak Prescott should not be the highest paid quarterback. There are certain players who should be. Now, you're going to have people catch up salary-wise. If Aaron Rodgers signs his deal four years ago, you know, maybe he's going to be underpaid at some point in his career. But there's certain guys where, like Kirk D. Cousins, should not be the highest-paid quarterback at any time in his career. If you want to give him guaranteed money, I'm all for that. And whatever they make, they make. I mean, it's not my money. It just puts more pressure on your capologist to spread the money around, to make smart investments there. But you don't have to give every quarterback the next, hey, you're next up to be the highest paid quarterback in the league. That's just, to me, that sounds financially ignorant. Yeah, Paul. It's almost like the teams have no choice. They're backed into a corner. If you want to upgrade the quarterback position, you got to pay. The only way around it is to draft a quarterback and ride out that rookie salary, uh, which is the best way. If you happen to get a rookie that's good, you've got a five-year hall pass, a four-year hall pass at the quarterback position. Otherwise, you have to pay or you're... The position is bad on your team, and you got no chance to win. What if I let Dak Prescott go and be a free agent? Then the Cowboys will not make the play. No, but who is going to pay him $30, $38 million a year? That I mean, I, I like Dak Prescott. I like him personally, and I like him professionally. But I, I also have to look at this, and I have to be a businessman with this and go, is he worth that kind of money? Now, compared to everybody else, I guess, but that doesn't make it right. I, I just think the salary structure is, is really flawed in the NFL when it comes to that position. You have to have, I want to pay a, a great quarterback great money. I don't want to pay a good quarterback great money. And that's where you, you run the risk here. But Dallas could have paid Dak Prescott before this. You could have probably signed him to $34, $35 million six months ago. Yes, he the NFL seems to be the only sport that really struggles with this, figuring out how to value people. Whereas like they used to, like you were just saying before, a quarterback would get drafted first overall and get you know $50 million right out of the gate, completely unproven, yeah. and you'd have all of these busts. And now this under this new system, teams are being backed into or sort of cornered into paying their quarterback way more than they need to. What is it about the <laughs> NFL that... Like this one sport specifically struggles with that. Is it how different the positions are? I just don't know how we got around to you haven't proven yourself. Here's $50 million. <laughs> I get if I said to you as a businessman, hey, Jimmy hasn't ever done this before. I mean, he, he did it, but he, he did it in college, but he, you know, kind of wasn't at a high level, but he was good. Oh, I think we should pay him top salary. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Hey, this guy was, uh, you know, good in college. We don't know if he can play in the NFL. Here's $50 million. It just seems kind of counterintuitive to being a smart businessman. I'm all for these quarterbacks. Get all the money you can. It's the toughest position in all the sports. There are certain quarterbacks that I look at and go, he's very good. Or he's good, and that's as good as he's going to get. Patrick Mahomes is going to get paid, and he should get paid. Deshaun Watson's going to get paid, and he should get paid. Dak Prescott is going to get paid. He's going to get paid more than he probably should, and he's the Cowboys quarterback. But I put the blame on the Cowboys. You could have signed him a while ago and been done with this. 
you know, you, you draft Ezekiel Elliott. Nobody drafts running backs that high I- anymore. And then you pay him again. So you basically overpaid twice for Ezekiel Elliott. First by drafting him in the top five. And then you came back and then you doubled down and then you paid him again to start the second you know, contract. To me, that defies logic. I can get somebody to get you 1,200 yards behind that offensive line. And I can get him probably in a third or fourth or fifth round. The Pollard kid is a good running back. He's a nice running back for them. Zeke can be great. I don't want to, I don't want a running back on his second contract. The fact that the NFL odds have Jameis Winston and Christian McCaffrey as the same odds to win the MVP. That tells you everything you need to know about the running back position. Christian McCaffrey can't be any better than he was last year. And he's got a bad team. Zeke Elliott has got this. He's got worse odds than Christian McCaffrey to be the MVP. Yeah, McClellan. Is, uh, is there any chance they're paying Dak to be like a face of a franchise leader? Like, does that count? Like, Jerry Jones cool is the face of the franchise. Well, I mean, just his personality is so good. Is, that, is there a value on that? Because everyone seems to love Dak personally, like interview-wise and stuff. I, I, I guess it, it's Jerry's. It's Jerry's. He's the face of the franchise. He's the coach. He's the GM. He's the owner. It, it's Jerry. I, I like Dak Prescott as the quarterback. I don't know if he's a great quarterback. And that's not a knock on him. I just don't know if he is. And the fact that they went out and got C.D. Lamb, they didn't need another wide receiver. It's nice to have it. Just ask Aaron Rodgers. But what are they saying? Can Dak do this on his own, or does he still need more help? Hey, we're going to keep Zeke there. Offensive line. Uh, we got another wide receiver here for you. I, I don't know. They send mixed messages, the Cowboys do. But they could have wrapped this up a long, long time ago. I was also noticing that, you know, we, we see these long shots. Uh, you had Mahomes was 35 to 1 before he won the MVP. Lamar Jackson was 40 to 1. 16 running backs have won the MVP. You know, the last running back to win the MVP? Um, I'll give you, if I give you the year, you'll get it. Uh, let me see. He's not with the team that he won the MVP with. He's still in the league? He is still in the league. Kind of. He's still in the league. Adrian Peterson. 2012. Four of the last five winners have had odds longer than 30 to 1 to win the MVP. Just something to keep in mind for entertainment purposes only. Yes, McLovin. Uh, there's been a trend. Two second-year quarterbacks have won in a row, and you've been a Kyler Murray fan for a long time. I know. So uh, are you looking at him and evaluating him? No, because or? he's got to win 12 games. Lamar Jackson, they had the best regular season record, and Mahomes was putting up record-setting numbers, and then, I mean, what? he had record-setting any- numbers, and, and he was on a really good team. Is there any chance the Cardinals take that next big step like, like the Ravens did? Well, the Niners are going to be good. Seattle's going to be good. I mean, the Rams will be competitive. They, they're not going to be a 13-win team, but they might you know, win 9, 10, maybe. Arizona would have to win 11 games, maybe 12 games for, Lamar Jack, or for uh, Kyler Murray to, to get that shot. 
Also, the NFL ticket sales, the value, the Patriots' average ticket price, this secondary market, $433. It's 39% below last season's average. That's nearly double the next worst performer. The Bears have dropped off 22% below last season's average ticket. But my Buccaneers up 135% in average prices. The Buccaneers now have the sixth priciest average ticket on the secondary market, $485 per seat. Uh, Raiders sold out. Hot ticket. New stadium. Broncos. Broncos are one of the hottest teams in the secondary ticket market. Excuse me? Yeah. Vegas had a jump from last season's average, uh, 528% for the Raiders. That's nearly triple the next nearest team in terms of jump in demand. So just some fun numbers there. Also, there was a story by Gary Myers. Gary Myers has been covering the NFL for, I'm going to guess, 30, 40 years. And he had a, a report here, which I'm paraphrasing. But uh, he said that part of the reason why Tom Brady left the uh, New England Patriots had to do with a kind of tension between him and the offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels. Uh, Tom Brady has since come out and said, you know, that's not true. And uh, I mean, he had other words. He was very vocal about it. But uh, Josh McDaniels and Brady had verbal bouquets for each other when they, they departed. My thought is Brady and Josh McDaniels may have tension, but I have tension with some of my brothers. Like in, I mean, you do. That happens when you're on the job. You know, I have I have tension sometimes with Paulie, but we're in it together doing the same job and we're here every day. And then you go, OK, let's shake it off. Let's move on. We have to do this job. There's tension that's involved. That doesn't necessarily mean that wouldn't be a reason why if I'm Brady. Now, Brady did have a problem with the offense last year. He was vocal about that. He didn't like. But I think he was upset because he had nobody to throw it to. You know, the philosophy was, hey, Tom, we don't have a good offensive line and we don't have any weapons, but uh, hey, can you get the ball out in less than three seconds? Okay, ready, break. That's sort of the feeling I have. That, that could lead to tension if I'm Tom Brady, but it's not Josh McDaniel's fault. They just didn't have weapons there. But you know, if Gary Myers said he had sources on this, do I think there's tension with Brady and Josh McDaniels? I would be shocked if there wasn't. But do I think that that would be the reason why he would go, I'm leaving? I think it was a culmination of a lot of things, and it had to do with having fun. If they had better weapons, then your offensive coordinator is calling a better game plan. Then Tom is having more fun. Then you reduce the tension there. That's it. That's how simple it is. We'll take a break. He wrote the book on Michael Jordan, The Jordan Rules, Sam Smith. How's that relationship now? What's he think of the documentary? We'll talk to Sam. Been a while since I've spoken to him. It's 20 after the hour. We'll get to your phone calls as well here on the Dan Patrick Show after this. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app, by searching FSR. You know, one of the fun parts of the documentary on The Last Dance, the uh, Jordan documentary with the Bulls, is you're seeing footage and you're seeing a lot of these people that I saw pretty much every summer in May and June where you'd see them when I'd be out there with the Sports Center 
and you'd see the Chicago Bulls playing against whoever, Seattle, or if it was Utah or Portland or the Lakers, whoever it would be. And one of those people I always enjoyed running into uh, because he always had something smart to say, uh, something smart that he was writing about was Sam Smith. He wrote the book, The Jordan Rules. He also uh, co-authored Derek Rose's autobiography, I'll Show You, Bulls.com writer, longtime Bulls NBA writer. Sam, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. How have you been? I've been great, Dan. Good to see you again. I, I see you're not on ESPN. Is that right? Yes, I, I finally left. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm glad you stayed following my career, Sam. That's why you're a great reporter. Thank exactly. You. <laughs> I, I, think that, I, I think that was the point about being smart. <laughs> uh, when you were tell people what the Jordan rules was about. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of double entendre in a sense, and that was not covered in the documentary. Not that it should be either, um, but it was sort of a, uh, you know, a play off the Pistons defense, which was essentially a trapping defense when they finally realized, you know, we can't play this guy. We've got great defenders, Joe Dumars, Dennis Rodman, and he's beating us all by himself. So we're going to double team and triple team him and just guide him to places on the floor um, for Jordan rules. And, and well, the Bulls Jordan rules and sometimes was, and Phil Jackson used to say a lot, you know, the pretty girl gets kissed. You were around Phil a lot. Said, um, you know, the Bulls had an internal rule. It was sort of a joking thing, internal rule that, you know, if you were sick, you had to come in, see the trainer, get treated, get medicine, go home. And when Jordan got sick, the trainer went to his house. <laughs> so, so there were different Jordan rules. But the book essentially was just supposed to be you know, really innocent and simple diary of a season. Back then, if you remember, you know, Bird and Magic were the NBA. Isaiah, uh, you know, was about uh, sharing. It was about uh, making players better. It wasn't about scoring. And the notion was, well, no, Michael, you can't win with Michael. People wrote that all the time, said, you know, he's great. He's a star. He's the MVP. We love watching him but you're not going to have a winning team that way because he scores too much. He doesn't involve his teammates. So the Bulls are trying to get through the Pistons, and I've been traveling with the team several years and thought, oh, uh, uh, you know, I had, had my dream job working for a newspaper, all really ever wanted. It was great fun. Um, and I see these guys have written books and read books, and now I'm, now I'm starting to meet them. And I go, well, they're not so smart. Uh, maybe I can do that too. So David Halberstam's Breaks of the Game about mm. the Blaze, Blazers in the late 70s was mm. always a really my favorite basketball book because it was a story, you know, beyond the game about the people and the elements of being a team together over the season. So I said, well, maybe I'll do something like that in my spare time. And, you know, what's more important in life is, for the most part, is well health these days, of course, but being in the right place at the right time. And I happen to be you know, pick the season 90-91 instead of Jordan breaking his foot in game three like he did in 85-86. The Bulls end up uh, upsetting. You know, Portland doesn't get there. They were the favored. Then they beat Magic in the finals. And now I've got a diary of Mag J Michael Jordan and the Bulls winning a title, which happens to come out right about the time Jordan skips the trip to the White House to go on a gambling weekend with Slim Buller and a bunch of this unbeknownst to him you know, convicted, <laughs> convicted drug dealers and things. So everything sort of blows up at once. So this story, gambling, all this sort of stuff. And I'm, and I'm going, you know, I was just said, hey, I would just wanted to peel back the curtain a little bit, show you what a season's like. Did Jordan know you were writing that book? 
Oh, oh yeah, they all knew. Okay. I had I had told guys to season. And when I'm proud about the book, I mean, of course, it's taken 30 years and now I've got validation because Michael sort of copped to it now and said, yeah, you know, <laughs> I could be a jerk sometime. <laughs> you know, because you know, back then it was, well, you know, Michael is a perfect, you know, marketing figure and he's up in the treehouse to deliver the kids Coke and Coca-Cola and his, uh, with the shoes and the kids are dancing and singing, be like Mike and well, how could he be like this? You know, how could he say, you know, Horace Grant, you can't eat today on the plane going home because you played badly. Or, you know, Bill Cartwright, don't throw him the ball because he, he's he's got 15 fingers. He won't catch it. Throw it to him. <laughs> you throw it to him. I'm not throwing it to you. Michael wouldn't do those things. And so now, Michael, you know, that is, to me, it have been the great thing about the auto, uh, about the documentary, seeing him the way we saw him in the 80s, you know, open and funny and, and challenging and, and and these interviews have just been the best part of it to me anyway, when did he change sam it was really in the early night obviously the the confluence of events you know the celebrity the success and now the controversies again you know the, obviously the book to some extent and i said i i had been traveling with the team several years and told all the players and him too before we had a good relationship i had played golf with him and been around him a lot and said, you know, I'm going to write a book about the behind the scenes with the uh, team, but nobody's going to lose their job and nobody's going to be embarrassed with their family. It's just going to be what it's like. And, and that, that's what I felt it was. Then with, with that, then the gambling thing comes up. You know, he had skipped the trip to the White House to do this. Imagine what that would be like today. Uh, you know, and then, you know, in, in New York during the playoffs, he's not going to Atlantic City. Uh, or he goes to Atlantic City and the New York papers make a big fuss about it, which was really a stupid story. But nevertheless, he's starting to feel all these years. And I've sat and talked with you guys and being accommodating. And, and he really was. He was the best guy in the league to deal with for a star. Uh, maybe Magic is the only one even close as far as accommodating and friendly and open. And, it, 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 you know, essentially from that point on, he began to become rec reclusive. To the point, I mean, when he once he retired, he's become this complete recluse. Which, so I've really been surprised he did the documentary. But again, he's so far out ahead of all of us, you know, that this thing just becomes this this uh, icon. It's, it's amazing what the documentary's become. Oh, I think it's strategic. I thought it was brilliant marketing, Sam, on a couple of fronts. He's introducing himself to a new generation, reintroducing himself to our generation, but he's also sending a message to LeBron James and any of his fans uh, that, hey, you think LeBron is getting up there near me? The fact that he agreed to do this documentary on the day LeBron won the title with Cleveland. Sam, that's not a coincidence. This is a it's a 10, 10 uh, hour reminder of just how great Michael Jordan is. Yeah, I'd like to say that not the case, but but I actually think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> how is your relationship with Jordan now? He doesn't really have relationships with the media people for the most part because, you know, he doesn't have to. He owns a team. He's a billionaire and he just built his own golf course. But uh, it, once he came back in 95 and, and you know, you see now uh, with the interviews, he says, I'm Michael Jordan. <laughs> Nobody. You know, I'm sort of lint in a snowstorm to him. All of us are. <laughs> You know, so I've run into him a few times in Charlotte with the Bulls. You know, I still travel occasionally with the Bulls. I write on their team website now. And uh, he, he was great. One time, like a couple of years ago, we saw him in, in Charlotte. And he said, hey, I just got back. You know, we just came up from Jupiter. I, I changing diapers today. 
That's whatever, whatever. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, but it sounded like a good story. So he's, you know, he's been good. He'd come, he'd come around. But the interesting thing is he never comes to Chicago ever, yeah. even, even at the All-Star game this year. Uh, he never even came out and made an appearance. So it was uh, remarkable. But maybe now with uh, – and the other thing when you said with the timing with the LeBron and everything, he, he's actually a figure for this era more than any because, you know, this is not an era of depth. You know, this is an era – of you know, like success, highlights, you know, and uh, mims, however you pronounce that, and he sort of fits perfectly into this because he's, you know, he's he, he's well spoken, good looking, you know, and and uh, comes up with hot takes all the time. <laughs> he's like he's like evolved perfectly into this era. What did the documentary not capture? If you're going to have one one item. I, yeah, I, I, it's, you know, to me, it's sort of like based on a true story. You know, like you see a lot of these movies. I think I think everything they're talking about basically happened. But ele- elements of it get, get over, you know, get forgotten about, you know, like like when he provoked the Pistons into that walkout. Uh, he really did. They were up 3-0 to Bulls, and he went to practice the day before. I remember sitting there, and he just eviscerates this two-time champion, three-time finals team as unworthy, shouldn't be a champion, you know, should, the NBA should take away their trophies. And that's really what motivated him to do this. It wasn't this walkout that, you know, this revisionist history the Pistons came up with later. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, I've also loved the, you, you know, the Seinfeld Festivus thing where he's airing of all his grudges still 30 years later, you know, <laughs> Krauss and Isaiah and everybody, you know, making fun of Gary Payton. How dare anyone challenge me? You know, it's, it's been amazing stuff. It's been it's been just great stuff to watch. Yeah. And it's it's it, you're right. It is based off a true story because Michael's team is helping produce this. And Michael gets the last word with everything. Yeah. So it's I look, I enjoy it because it's a chance to let people in, you know, the window into our world back then, Sam, when it was pretty crazy following the Bulls. You did it every day. I was there for the finals. And I as I told people back then and, and remind them now, Michael, every NBA finals that I was there for ESPN, he would tell the PR guy. Tim Hallam, and he would say, Tim would come in and he'd say, Mike's not going to do after every win. He'll do it after every championship. You know, once we win the championship, he'll come in and he's going to do the interview with you on SportsCenter. I, I mean, that was magical. I, I was so lucky that I was there to help document that. And, you know, I forever indebted to ESPN allowing me to have that moment to capture that with Michael Jordan, whether I have a relationship or, you know, he likes me or didn't want me in the documentary. I couldn't care less. I was there to see that upfront personal. And, you know, that was magical. It really was. It was a magical, magical time. Yeah. You know, when you're going through history, you know, and it's your day to day life, you don't sort of realize that, you know, I wasn't at the Gettysburg address. Um, okay, not sure after that, but I'm sure those people, you know, in Gettysburg listening to Lincoln going, well, you know, they're not thinking 200 years from now, people are going to be talking about this and asking me where I was. But, you know, and that's what it was. We're running into the airport. We're trying to catch the next plane, get to the next yeah. spot. You know, but it also reminds me, you mentioned Tim Hallam with that. It reminds me of what it was like with Michael, because even before the just before the championships, we'd be traveling and everybody wanted to see him. And you see a lot of these 
you know, after the game, celebrities and Terry Seinfeld around and whoever. And so we were in Washington one time and, and somebody came in and said it, Tim about this uh, queen from some European country or something wanted to see Michael. And Mike, uh, they came in and Michael said he was busy being taped or whatever. And Tim said, hey, there's a queen in every city. We don't worry about <laughs> Do you realize this, Sam? I don't know if anybody ever did a story on this. And, and maybe you could tell me if it's true or not. Every time I interviewed Jordan after he won a title, every single time, he had his shoes off and Tim Hallam had him with him. And I remember Tim saying that Michael always promised me his shoes. And I, I, I'm going to guess Tim has six pairs of Michael Jordan shoes from when he won those six titles. Did you ever hear this? No, actually, Michael used to give away the shoes all the time. You know, he wore a different pair of sneakers at every game he played in his entire career. But this is the NBA Finals clinching yeah, no, game. I know that. If Tim's got those... Uh, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, you should. But I'm surprised he's still working if he's got those. Because <laughs> that's, that's an investment. Yeah, Tim's got a new house, I think. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, he paid for it in shoes there. But yeah, Mike would come in, shirt tail out, drenched in champagne, Cuban cigar, and Tim Hallam would be behind him with his shoes. One time he said, Mike, take off your shoes. And he, Mike took off his shoes before he did the interview with us and gave them to Tim. And I, I think that was what Tim, that's all he ever asked from Michael was, can I have your shoes after we win the championships? And that's I, a big, it's actually a big ask. <laughs> what do you think those would get these oh days? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't. Michael, Michael Jordan signed shoes, uh, game worn championship shoes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, I got to, you know, because Tim is still working for the Bulls in the same job. And he dresses very modestly. <laughs> it's a smart move. He doesn't want to <laughs> let, let anybody read between the lines there. Uh, it's great to talk to you, Sam. And I meant when I said I enjoyed all of those years being able to be out there in Chicago, the wonderful members of the media for the most part. And uh, just <laughs> you're right. And, you know, I look back and I, I'm reminded that we got to chronicle history and we got to be around you know, somebody that will never be around again in our lifetime. Yeah, it was great fun. It was good to see you again. And uh, hopefully if there's another great documentary, I'll get on your show. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. <laughs> That's uh, Sam Smith, the author of The Jordan Rules. Also, he uh, wrote the uh, Derek Rose, well, he co-wrote that. Derek Rose, I'll Show You. That's available on uh, triumphbooks.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through your local independent bookstore. Yeah, he's really a, a, a funny guy, a sharp guy. But when he's saying, you know, you're there, uh, you know, when Lincoln's giving that speech and you're going, you know, yeah, this four score thing seems like pretty good. I, 200 years from now, they're going to be talking about this. Yeah, Paul. What would you guys think a pair of Michael Jordan's shoes from an NBA Finals game clinching game would go for? Just top of your head, because I have some numbers. Let me take a break. We'll come back. Okay. Can we, Fritzy, can you reach out to Tim Hallam? I, 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 may, I may have shared some out of school secrets there. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I'll check with him. Yeah. When you first, I thought maybe he was going to give it to some you know, special kid or something like that. But if he's if he hung on to all of those, that's that's well. Let's wild. don't let's don't guilt him into doing something. <laughs> I I just remember him getting Michael's shoes. Isn't that weird? Like the things you remember. All right, we'll come back after this. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app 
at FSR or stream us live every day at youtube.com slash the Dan Patrick show. Uh, before the break, I told the story of the PR director, Tim Hallam of the Chicago Bulls. And I remember that Tim would get Michael Jordan's shoes after they'd win a championship. And I remember specifically that he had a pair. He had he's, Michael took them off before he did a sports center interview. Paulie said, what do you think those shoes are worth? If I looked at all six championships, how much are those Michael Jordan shoes worth that he wore when they clinched the championship? What would you guess per pair? I've done a little research and I've gotten a baseline from a, a memorabilia person. For one pair of those game used Michael Jordan NBA final shoes. 100,000. That that would be low, but you're you're in the neighborhood. A pair of his shoes, Michael Jordan shoes from the flu game, 20 uh, from were sold in 2013 for 104,000. They said uh memorabilia dealer I got to said the timing of it now if you had a pair of Jordan's used shoes right now and put them up, yeah. you'd really be capitalizing on the hotness of him yeah. and what's going on now. He said you're looking at a buck 50. Okay. And I don't know if Tim Fritzy, did you reach out to Tim Hallam? I sure did. I haven't heard that just yet. And, uh, very curious to see what his response is going to be to that. Maybe you can join us tomorrow. Because I and I don't know how much Tim has been interviewed in this, but but Tim probably has a treasure trove of stories. Yes, Fritzy. If money was no object, you wouldn't spend two fifty, even three hundred thousand dollars for a pair of his. Uh, especially if he wore it in the final minutes of one of those championship clinching games. Well, who said that I'm, money? No, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that it's only like that's only would be one one fifty of those six championships. That someone wouldn't spend a lot more for one of his game worn shoes from a clinching championship game. Well, you only pay what you have to pay. You don't go. No, I don't want to pay one hundred and fifty. I'm going to pay two hundred and fifty. So um, to me, I think it would be worth two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, it's just kind of weird where that's a piece of art where, you know, you got your famous paintings over here and then you got a pair of sneakers over here. But hey, I look at my studio, look at my man cave. This is what I've collected over the last 30 years. Yes, Eaton. Did you see that they have an auction going up soon? Um, I don't think it happened yet, but where they have one of the items that they have is Kurt Cobain's acoustic guitar from that MTV Unplugged yeah. performance. Yeah. Um, they're selling that, and they're estimating that to go for over a million dollars. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, but guitars go for crazy money. Mm. Yeah. That, I don't know if anything else goes for crazy money in the rock and roll world, but but guitars, it feels like that's a cool thing because you can display a guitar like yeah. a drum set, a drum kit. You can't <laughs> put it on the wall. You know, here's Keith Moon's drum kit from The Who, and you go, oh, it's on the wall. Uh, guitars, <laughs> you can put them up on the wall. Yeah. McLovin, would you update the poll results? Okay, I put up who uh, do you think will be the MVP of the next NFL season? It's a runaway. Patrick Mahomes is destroying everybody. Lamar Jackson second. All right. At the top of next hour, at, in about 10 minutes. Now, Fritzy, I'm going to tell you just so you're prepared. So if I come to you and I go, Todd, who are your MVP? I, I, I fell asleep on you the other day. I felt terrible about it. Believe me. I was not prepared. Did you literally fall asleep on me? I didn't literally fall asleep. My eyes were open. It's hard to fall asleep with your eyes open. But I gave the impression I was paying attention. And obviously, my head must have been somewhere else. How can I expect the audience to do this if you're not paying attention? I I hung you out to dry and I should have been prepared. And I wasn't. I'm going to make it up to you this time. You're going to make it up to me. I've been been staring at these odds since uh, before the show even started, just in case you're going to ask this question. Thank you, Todd. You're welcome. Uh, (laughs) 
Scott in <laughs> Iowa. Hey, Scott, what do you have for me? Hey, Dan, uh, love your show. Thank you, Scott. Uh, I think uh, Dak Prescott is just like Danny White. Okay. He's great, he's good, but he ain't going to get there. And uh, well, to get you, you through you, the coronavirus, listen to country music by Ken Burns. All right, well, thank you, Scott. Yeah, anything Ken Burns does, I love. He does a great job. I did love that line by Sam Smith when he said, you know, it's it's a document. It's based off a true story. That's that's really that was sneaky good. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of it? Oh, it's based off a true story. We're going to talk to the commissioner of the Pac-12, Larry Scott, in the final hour. Now, what's the rules here, Paulie? We each get two MVP selections. Snake draft, two choices. Is there any punishment involved in this? We can always find something. Yeah, I need to have something at stake. I I love competition. 